0: listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I am a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about private business in America. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm with Eric Degenfelder. He is the CEO of UC Coatings located in Buffalo, New York. Eric, welcome to The Currency. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'm really glad to be here today this is a great facility I've i I love there's one thing I love about Buffalo and that is its industrial history so we're in this really great kind of I'll say old industrial area in the sense that it's got a lot of history a lot of like brick multi-story buildings uh, UC see coatings I think has been around since 1971 1970
1: do us a favor and just tell us a little bit about who is UC coatings what do you make and who do you make it for Sure. So the company was started in 1971 uh, by a guy named uh, Mr. Murray, and he uh, started in kind of the chemical business, but then quickly went over to the wood protection business. Okay. So the original uh, product that they invented was a product called Anchor Seal, which is famous in the industry. Anchor Seal protects wood from uh, moisture loss and splitting. And it's used even by um, sawmills, but also by even woodworker people or home hobbyists. Okay. So it's quite w- what's widespread across the uh, wood industry. Um, From there, the company grew into other product lines uh, to really serve the wood industry in total, the whole value chain. Um, We are about 50 people right now. Okay. uh, And we have three branches. So we have Buffalo, which is our headquarters and our manufacturing site. We also have a um, branch in Portland, Oregon where we make some products. And just recently here at the beginning of September, we bought a company in Seattle called Ecochemical. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And um, how is it running a company across
0: two coasts? I mean, essentially we're on the East Coast here in New York. And then you've got Seattle and
1: Portland. I mean, as the CEO, that must be <laughs> a yeah, little bit of a well, challenge. It's it's pretty interesting. Um growing the company in Buffalo and serving really the hardwood industry, uh, the geographic concentration was really the East. Okay. So our historical customer base is Pennsylvania, Kentucky, um, West Virginia, and and really where the hardwoods are grown in the US. Sure. Um, we have Deliberately now expanded across the country mm-hmm. and uh getting more into what we would call the softwood market, which is the building products, like you might know two by fours plywood things right. like that right um and so as far as the challenges of geographic expansion, I mean, uh, I travel out to the West Coast now on a regular basis because we're working on this integration of this new company. Yeah. Uh, but it's important to have really great people, uh, given that that's a huge, you know, distance sure. and, and, uh, and time zone difference. Um, so we kind of have our West strategy and then our uh, East strategy. And I just hired a new uh, Western sales director to help lead the team in the West. So I think the most important thing is the people piece, because no way I can, you know, keep going back and forth to the West Coast. That's a lot.
0: Exactly. You're trying to get the right people on the bus, get them in the right roles, and then you can have confidence in the organization. So that's got to be a a bit of a challenge. Uh, Congratulations on the acquisition, though. And it's interesting that this uh, kind of move from, not away from hardwoods, but expanding into the softwood market. We'll talk a little bit about wood, I think, as a material in just a few minutes. I, I want to, before we jump into that, because I'm, I'm curious about that, especially in the context of sustainability and so on, but let's talk a little bit about um, you, you know what you make so you've talked a little bit about the anchor product you talk about manufacturing here are you more of a chemical formulator like this product for for us that for those of us that don't know the wood industry are these pastes
1: glues varnishes what what is yeah it? so I'll explain it real real quickly so whether it's um, hardwoods which would be like maple oak uh, those kind of cherry. species cherry yep. for example walnut is yep. another hardwood yeah. and then you have the softwood which which is like uh, southern yellow pine, Douglas fir, sure. hemlock, things like that. Those, And then uh, white pine, red pine as well. Okay. So the uh, value chain is important. So you have the trees that are growing in the forest, uh, and then you go to sawmills, okay. and then often they go to kiln drying process. <laughs> and then they're taking that wood and making it into a variety of things, right? So one is uh, wood flooring, another is cabinets, another is furniture, Sure. but it also goes into railroad ties, pallets, and then the softwood goes into, uh, as I said, plywood, two by fours, Big beams for, like, building. And so they're doing a lot more building of large buildings with wood. For example, they're building an a 18-story all-wood building in Cleveland right now. Oh, my now. goodness. Um, because the engineering around those wood materials has really improved uh, over time.
0: 18-story wood frame building?
1: Yes, Wow, is that so? Are they where are they in that project? I like, I have to look this up. I'm very curious. It's on the it. west side of Cleveland. I forgot the um, I don't exact name the spot, of the project, but, that's but it's, it's going to have commercial space and residential space on the west end of Cleveland. Okay. I'll try to find the project and throw it in the show notes. It's really fascinating, Eric. Wow. That's yeah, something. so the point is that, that the advancements in wood technology in making these building materials are allowing now these these kinds of structures. Um, so the way we serve that industry really is end-to-end. So we sell the anchor seal product, which can be used to protect logs after they've been cut okay. in the forest and they're getting transported to the uh, sawmill. Then at the sawmill itself, uh, we use the anchor seal to protect the um, wood from splitting during the kiln drying process. Okay, And we also uh, have what we call... Conachem to stop mold and fungus from growing on the wood during that process. And then finally, we um, added a product called Gem Paint that's used to brand the lumber. If you go to uh, like a a Lowe's or Home Depot, you'll see logos on the side yeah, of the, yeah, the like wood. Yeah, Georgia Pacific. Yeah, exactly. TV, yep. So that can be our paint. That's oh, okay. the uh, that's the gem paint
0: material. Why? What's unique about that paint? Why don't they just use Krylon or some, uh, what's different about that paint?
1: Yeah, it has to really uh, work well on wood and not soak in too much and provide great hiding, gotcha. plus dry very quickly because when they're in that sawmill, they want to keep the production sure. moving. Okay. So that's the characteristics of that paint. Um, and then the we go all the way, though, to the end users. So we have a product called um, Bates that's used in furniture production yeah. to stop glue from sticking to all the uh, uh, presses and other equipment that they use in, oh, okay. in the manufacturing. And then finally... Um, Our most consumer-based product line is called Seal Once. So so it's water-based sealer for wood and concrete that's very environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. And the sales of that product have really taken off, and we're selling that through Ace Hardware stores online. So the reason I went through all that is you can see our... Presence in the wood products industry kind of end to end for uh, for everybody do you know what
0: comes to mind, Eric, when I hear you talking about these various aspects of the industry that end to end aspect I think of uh, if i 'm putting myself in your role or in a marketing role it 's it's the sales infrastructure necessary because a b2b sale like if i'm selling 50 gallon drums of a sealant to you know versus i'm trying to get on the shelves at ace hardware or walmart or you know, that's a very different sales process how, you know, how do you do that? Do you, how do you, have, do you have a diverse
1: team that's calling on different kinds of accounts, or do you have somebody that's just a genius that knows how to make magic happen? Yeah, it's, it's really important to think about the market segments and how to approach those. So the way I've organized it is... I already mentioned the east versus west strategy. Right. In the middle of the country there's very little wood that's actually grown and harvested. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So in the west you've got like Washington and Oregon and northern California yeah, yeah. and then the east those states I mentioned before. So um, it makes sense to have people on the ground in both regions, and so we have direct sales teams that call on the sawmills, that call okay. on the pressure treaters, that call on the uh, kiln dry people. So you're not going through distribution there. You're no, directly. it's a direct sale, okay. yeah. and that's important because um, those customers want you to be able to look at their operation, help solve their problem, speak their language, yeah. understand their specific needs. Um, And also provide technical consultation on how to solve problems and improve things. you're kind of like a sales engineer in a lot of circumstances, a problem solver. You're not just,
0: you're not a rep pushing product. You're in there saying, oh, I can help you. This line is
1: slowing down. It's gumming up. Exactly. What we train our people, and they're very good at this, is don't come in with your product First, talk to them about their operation and what their hot buttons are, and then later talk about how our offering, the product, the tech service, can solve their problems, Mm. can help them process the wood more quickly, uh, in a more cost-effective manner, Mm -hmm. with higher quality. I mean, those are kind of the universal goals of a lot of our customers.
0: You know, it's funny. You know what? You're the the approach that you're sharing. You know, it makes total sense. It's almost obvious. I don't mean that to diminish the approach. But what makes it remarkable is that so many people don't do that. So many salespeople just go in and try to sell product. And, and it's amazing to me. Everybody, nobody wants to be sold to. Everybody wants a problem solved. Everybody wants to find a better life. They're trying to get something to be better than it is right now. It's a lot easier to help people do that versus, hey, I got a thing I'd like you to buy. But
1: it's amazing to me how many people don't approach it that way. So kudos. <laughs> and I'll give you a quick uh, quick uh, story. So about three weeks ago, I was traveling with our uh, Kentucky and West and, um Tennessee sales rep, and we were visiting different sawmills and It was amazing how the setups of the facilities were all different, their kind of feelings on what they needed were all different. Um, but this guy, Jason, I was traveling with, he used to work in a sawmill okay and so he is an expert at figuring out exactly what that guy needs yeah. and, you know, honing in on He's the problem. That guy. Exactly. Yeah. So that gives you a, a, a quick profile of one of our typical reps in sure. terms of what we look for. Um, but your other point about the whole consumer market. Yeah. What about that? Um, how we do, do that? I'm, we have a um, national sales manager and technical people to serve specifically that market because it is different. In that case... Um, we, we are going after the hardware stores. For example, Ace Hardware is one of our customers. Mm-hmm. And that requires somebody who knows how to sell through distribution, yeah. how to talk about um, the setup of the cans on the shelf. They call it the planogram yeah. and what I the know. merchandising yeah. looks like. That's a very different kind of situation than the guy selling direct to the sawmill. Absolutely. So it's a different set of skills. It's a different strategy. You have to think about branding. You have to think about product positioning. Uh, We are selling now through uh, e-commerce, Amazon, as well as our own website. Sure. Um, One thing that's important there is to manage what I would call channel conflict, because uh, Amazon and e-commerce is up and coming, but you still want to keep your... Uh, what we call brick and mortar or store channel happy. Mm-hmm. So it's important to not let one overcome the other in terms of the overall strategy. Absolutely. And that's way different from selling, uh, you know, mold control chemicals to a sawmill. Right, which you're selling in bulk at that
0: point. Right. And uh, shipping pallets as opposed to units off of a shelf, consumer-sized units. What What uh, is your dealing with... Um, Amazon, you know, versus the brick and mortar. The other thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, Amazon's Amazon's kind of this blessing and a curse. It's such a huge opportunity for companies like yours to sell product digitally, they have a storefront digitally. But on the other hand, they own everything. You know, like they won't give you customer data, they won't you know, you you are just glad to be able to put your, your stuff on their on their site. Do you have discussions or thoughts about that? Is there a vulnerability in your mind with uh, going with Amazon? Is there, are there ways that you kind of uh, try to offset that risk that what if Amazon pulled the plug one day or what if they decide they want to come out with a competing
1: product? Well, let me tell you, first of all, where, why we are dealing with Amazon. So our focus is on the consumer Or the contractor. Sure. In the case of the The SEAL1s product line. Exactly. And they have different preferences for how they want to get their product. Some people want to get it online. Some people want to go to the store and pick it up and physically touch it and talk to somebody. So the reason we're doing both is because our customer base falls into both categories. As far as the power of Amazon... um, I have a digital marketing manager who has a lot of experience in Amazon and how best to uh, position ourselves, do the right um, pricing strategy, the right kind of advertising strategy Mm -hmm. to maximize the search process, which is very important, whether that be on Amazon or Google. And so that drives traffic to build awareness of the brand and what it can do. And frankly, the e-channels, Amazon, our website, can develop a lot faster than brick-and-mortar stores. The brick-and-mortar stores take more time to expand into. Um, Do I worry about Amazon longer term? I mean, not yet, because it's been growing quite well. And... um, as long as we stay a preferred vendor, we're now in this what's called fulfilled by Amazon, which means we're in their warehouses. Nice. And uh, so they do the shipping for us. Mm-hmm. We always get a very favorable rating on their overall metrics. Um, In addition to Amazon, we have our own website, which does quite well also. So you're selling direct-to-consumer on the website? Yes, we are. So that ships directly out of our facility. And, you know, talking to business people, um, there is another part of this, which is transition and going from shipping products in drums and... uh, 250-gallon tote containers to then shipping quarts and gallons (laughs) and five-gallon pails. Uh, We've had to change our production setup to be able to handle that Uh, and also our shipping setup, but also a bit the mindset. Like um, It's kind of like, hey, guys, now this is our key growth area. And, you know, the turnaround time is really important. Shipping next day is really important. Uh, Having the labels and cans look really good. Having the box not break in transit. These are all things that the company wasn't used to before we got into these kind of product lines. How long have you been doing this?
0: These these product lines we're talking about now? Uh, About three or four years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It's interesting how it drives a cultural change. I've seen this Where a company, like you're saying, might be uh, selling and shipping bulk product, wholesale product... And now this consumer market, you can go direct to consumer, you've got Amazon, these other platforms. And so now the warehouse is fulfilling a 32-ounce bottle of something, whereas they used to send a big drum. Exactly. And it does create these conversations within the company. You're the CFO is saying, well, I don't know why we have to bother with these little 32-ounce. But then the e-commerce guy is saying, hey, look, I just drove millions of dollars of revenue for the company that we didn't have before. And, and it's not that they disagree with each other, but it's, it just it forces a change. And, and even in process, how do you get a 32-ounce bottle out the door efficiently, you know, because as, as you know, you and I are both, both consumers, we buy on Amazon. I'm sure you buy on Amazon. Everybody does. We have expectations. I I hit that buy now
1: button, man, if that thing doesn't show up the next day, I, you know, there's something's wrong. Yeah. And they measure your performance on that. And if it's, gets really bad, they can disqualify you from the site. So, uh, What we've done is set up a special area that handles the uh, filling, that handles the packaging, that handles the shipping. Sure. So we know exactly uh, each day when FedEx is going to show up and when UPS is going to show up. We have uh, guys designated just to do that packaging and labeling of all those boxes and have it ready to go. So uh, preparing for those shipments is really setting up the right production flow on the floor and and having the right people assigned who are used to doing it. Well, I appreciate you letting
0: me take you down this kind of side road about the digital and the consumer, direct-to-consumer versus B2B uh, sales. It's just interesting. So thank you. I want to go back, though, because you really caught my attention with this, you know, 18-story uh, wood frame building being constructed. And I'm using that not as, let's talk about that building, but let's talk about wood As a product, I mean, it's a renewable product. It's a, you know, like, what are some of the aspects of wood? Why is wood so important
1: versus some of these other materials? I think when people think about wood, they might think about some of the old pictures from the old days where they went in and cut down these old trees and then. Left the mountain bear and that kind of picture. But that's not the wood industry today. So today, uh, wood um, forests are managed very sustainably. In the case of hardwoods, um, the more mature trees are taken out of the forest, which means that the younger trees can grow faster and grow up and take their place. Think about wood as an agricultural product, but with a 60-year harvest cycle instead of a one-year harvest cycle. As that wood is growing, it's pulling in carbon dioxide from the air and then storing that carbon as wood fibers. And then when you uh, harvest the tree and make it into furniture or flooring or whatever, that carbon stays sequestered in the wood. So effectively... The hardwood industry and softwood industry is removing CO2 from the air and Mm. then storing it in finished products Permanently. Permanently. So it's not leaking back out and... Okay. Exactly. And the other part is um, the energy consumption. So some of the alternatives to wood are like uh, steel or concrete. Those take a lot of energy to consume and produce in the process, and the wood takes about one hundredth the amount of energy of wow. those materials wow. to produce. The, the, if the forest is managed well, the large mature trees are no longer growing, so they are, they're no longer absorbing as much CO2. If you remove those mature ones the younger ones can actually grow much faster. And that absorbs the CO2 a lot faster. And a little known fact is that um, in the hardwood industry today, uh, the rate of wood addition is uh, twice of what's being taken out. So um, the amount of wood in the forest is actually increasing, even with the harvesting uh, that's going into the market. In North America, you're saying? Yeah, North America. And that brings up another, point. I mean, a big, uh, consumer of, uh, hardwoods in the U S is export and it's been going to China. Uh, but now with this tariff war, as well as the China economic situation, that's cut down a lot. Now China is taking, um, their hardwoods from other countries like Russia or Africa where, uh, the wood is not harvested in a sustainable way. Hmm. So, um, that's my little pitch about getting the uh, tariff war solved. And in fact, we were in Washington, D.C., a couple weeks ago, uh, visiting with uh, Congress people from multiple states, as well as senators, to talk about the industry. This is run by the Hardwood Federation, uh, and let them know what's going on with the industry, the benefits of the industry, the in- amount of jobs and economic benefit from the industry, because we need help uh, during this, um, tariff war. Sure. Do do you have a sense for what you're expecting with the war, how long it's going to last and what kind of impact is it having on your business? Well, in the, in the people I talked to, I was focused on the New York, uh, senators and Congress people. What they said is that really the tariff, uh, trade negotiations are in the hand of the executive branch (laughs) and that they're having very little influence over what's happening. Are you telling me that Chuck Schumer and uh, Donald Trump aren't uh, getting along too well? They aren't talking about it. So (laughs) the tactic I took is we also talked to some Republican Congress people that were very well Uh, informed about the industry, for example. so We're a
0: hardwood region here. Exactly. So I
1: said, please talk to, um, you know, counterparts in the administration and get them informed on the facts, especially the economic benefit, the number of jobs associated with this industry. We had a sheet for each state that showed the economic impact. In New York, it's... um, Six billion dollar wow. economic impact wow. from the, uh, the hardwood in- industry. So um, the other thing we were doing was also visiting with the USDA, mm-hmm. because, in fact, wood is an agricultural product, oh, as course, I said, yeah. and seeing what, um, you know, influence we could exert through that channel. Hmm.
0: Hey, my guest today is Eric Degenfelder. He is the CEO of UC Coatings. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more uh, with our friend Eric. <laughs> Folks, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I have one question for you. Are you interested in the story of private industry in America? Do you care about private business? Do you care about entrepreneurship and wealth creation and even a little bit of marketing and branding? If so, do yourself a favor and sign up for my newsletter. That's right. I've got a free newsletter that goes out once a week. You can go over to my website. It's m i k e g a s t i n dot ncom Just shoot to the bottom of the page, the homepage there. And you'll see a form. All you have to do is put in your first name and your email address. I will never spam you. I will never sell your information. But what I will do once a week, I will send you an email that updates you on the content that I'm creating. I've got some great stuff in store. I'm working on some video essays that I'm really excited about. I'll keep you up to date on things like podcast episodes and articles that I'm putting out and even speaking engagements that I've got coming up. So if you're into anything that has to do with private business in America, I would highly suggest highly recommend you get over to my website, get signed up, get in the system, and be kept abreast of the latest content coming out from yours truly. Now guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. My guest today is Eric Degenfelder. He's the CEO of UC Coatings. Do me a favor uh, and check out the company. You can visit them at uccodings.com. That's uc Coatings dot com. You can learn a little bit about the business and uh, what they do. But Eric, welcome back to the currency. Yeah, thank you. This is. I want to kind of pick up. This is a really fascinating discussion. You brought up China. Um, I know a little bit about your background just from reading your bio. You know, we've never met before, but I know that you were involved in some larger companies like DuPont. Do you mind giving us a little bit of your background? Because I understand you're newer to UC. You you took the helm around February this year. Who, Who is
1: Eric? What's some of his background and And uh, how did you get here, and why are you here? Sure. So uh, I'm a chemical engineer from Cornell, so I think you can relate to that being from New York. Uh, I have an MBA from Northwestern in Chicago. Fantastic. And uh, I really grew up in the chemical industry. I won't go through my whole resume, but... um, The place where I spent the most time was with DuPont, which is a very large corporation. And as you might know, uh, merged with Dow and then broke into three separate companies. So I was with DuPont before that whole time period and spent most of my time in the the DuPont paint business. Uh, And while I was in that business... um, I told my boss, hey, I'd like to get an international assignment. So one day, uh, my wife and I were in the car, and uh, I got a call from my boss, and he said, Oh, I got a job for you in China. And I'm like, <laughs> Be careful. All right, what you ask let hard. me talk to my wife, and uh, we'll talk it over. So I called him back in, uh, an hour later and said, We're in. So, okay. did you have children at the time? Two, two young children. Okay. So. Um, I started my job in China at the beginning of uh, 2008. And that was a great time to go because things were booming. Uh, And DuPont, being a large corporation, had a really good program for expats in terms of some basic training, language training, uh, schooling for the kids at the international schools, uh, you know, housing, driver, all these kind of things. So being an expat at that time was a great experience, not only for me, but also for the family. And some uh, families come over and they want everything to be just like it was uh, in their America. old country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. that wasn't our attitude. Our attitude was get out, try the local food, get out in the city, really experience things. We did a lot of travel across Asia to many, many countries, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Japan, Korea, et cetera, India. Um, So the point is that that assignment was great, not only for me, but also for the family. My daughter was four when she moved there. My son was seven. And uh, they love it still. We go back there on a regular basis and still have friends there. Nice. Um, So that was the personal side of things. On the kind of work side of things, you talk about a time where it was busy. I mean, um, China was uh, growing fast, but a bit... Chaotic. I mean, in terms of finding the right people, people were switching jobs a lot. Uh, Hiring people was not easy. Uh, Business dealings with our uh, customers sometimes there have been a bit of shady practices that were in place. Yeah, Yeah. business
0: Uh, is conducted a little differently in other countries. Yes, and
1: in China in particular was almost like the Wild West. Yeah. Uh, What part of China were you? you Stationed in us, I guess. In, in Shanghai. Shanghai, okay. But my um, area of responsibility was not only China, but also all the other Asian countries. Goodness gracious. Um, so ultimately, that whole business was $600 million and okay. about uh, 2,000 people. So very widespread. But I'll also say that um, the people in China and the people in those other countries are very welcoming and very friendly. Um I really uh, felt embraced by everybody I dealt with. Um, so, but each day was a different day in terms of some new challenge or opportunity. Yeah. I bet. Uh, but we grew the business very successfully during that time, and things went quite well. Okay. Uh, it was kind of a work hard, play hard kind of environment. <laughs> I would say. Um, And so that was fantastic. And then I came back and did some more work with um, DuPont and then transitioned to Exalta, which was spun out from DuPont. Uh, And then after a few years of that, which were great, I thought, well, maybe it's time to think about doing something different. So I sought out a, uh, a job with a smaller company. And uh, obviously, UC Coatings is much smaller than either DuPont or Exalta. The other aspect of this is uh, we're owned by private equity. And sometimes private equity has a bad rap where um, they might buy a company come in and cut costs and whatever and just want to make money. That's not what I'm finding with my private equity mm. owners. Mm. They're very supportive of helping us expand and grow, for example, this recent uh, acquisition. So for me, at least, uh, the private equity world is kind of the right place at the right time. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I've, I've actually got an
0: interview set up with a, a managing director of a private equity fund out of Pittsburgh, and that's going to happen. Actually, I think I'm interviewing him next week. So that that will be coming up, and the reason I wanted to have him on the show, and i wasn't expecting you to say what you just said is that I think private equity can get a bad rap. I mean people hear oh wealth creation, private equity you know finance, and they just think these people are you know gobbling up everything and spitting out the bones. And their vision is to really see private businesses thrive, and they put their money where their mouth is. And so it's interesting you brought that up. So how long ago did the private equity firm acquire the business? Because I know we have a founding family. Obviously, they must have sold their interest at some point.
1: Yeah, they did. So uh, this Private equity firm called High Road Capital bought the business at the beginning of uh, 2018. Okay. So it's been about a year and a half. Sure, sure. And then you took the helm here as CEO in
0: February. In February, yeah. Okay. Wow. So what's it like going from uh, working for a giant publicly traded brand that people know all over the world, uh, you're based in China, you've got thousands of people and billions of dollars of uh, P&L responsibility, and, and then on the other hand saying it's a 50-person company, it's, it, it, it's good in its industry, but it's a 50-person business. I mean, this has
1: got to be such a shift of gears for you. The first thing is, um, and actually when I'm searching for people to come work here, I ask them the same question. It's the ability to wear multiple hats. And that means being able to do yeah. different things. It's more entrepreneurial, isn't it? Very entrepreneurial. Um, and one day I might be dealing with a supply chain opportunity or something in manufacturing. The next day it might be, bringing on a new customer, the next day it might be uh, acquisition. So everything is uh, diverse. And for all the people who work here, it's diverse as well, because sure. people touch a lot of different things. Whereas in a larger um, corporation, there's more specialization. Yeah. You know, I would, like I'm the chemist, or I'm the salesperson, yeah. or whatever.
0: I would guess, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that your time in China maybe prepared you for that a little bit? Because, It sounds like you said the business world was the Wild West. I'm guessing you had to wear different hats, although I'm sure you had a very specific role. Did that prep you for this entrepreneurial environment or are you just,
1: you just are the kind of guy that likes new challenges? It prepped me in terms of managing people. So I was in charge of the whole business. So thinking about how everything worked together, understanding all the functions, uh, is important in a big or small company in terms of running it. So that gave me great, um, experience and how all the pieces fit together. Uh, managing people is important anywhere. Um, Nobody's 100% perfect. So sometimes as a leader, you need to adapt your style a little bit, depending on which team or people you're dealing with. Uh, And then the other thing about China was just the the speed Mm. and making decisions quickly. And that works well for a small company that can be nimble. Uh, and agile. And that fits with the private equity model as well, because yeah. they want you to be able to move quickly and yeah. run your own show. Uh, so the China, small company, private equity, it's all kind of interrelated from yeah. a characteristic base. Yeah. I, was, I tend to think of transferable
0: skill sets. Like I'm sure the experience in China was completely different, but I just was curious. And I think maybe you're affirming some of that for me, that you know, were you able to transfer skill sets that you acquired in China to what the role now? And it sounds like you have. Um, you know, I would be curious to hear this because often I'm interviewing people that are like, hey, I, like the last uh, episode that published, you know, I'm a fifth generation owner, right, This of this other company. You've got a unique perspective because a fifth generation owner often, like right out of college, I'm working, even before college, I'm working in the family business, What are some of the things that stand out to you as being unique to a small, privately held company as opposed to a large corporation? Obviously, the size. We talked a little bit about the entrepreneurial culture or uh, pace. What are some other things that stand out
1: to you coming from large to small? Uh, Another aspect is really feeling like a family environment. And I'm making sure that we maintain that culture, even under my ownership, even though I wasn't the family owner. Sure, uh, People feel a connection to each other in this company. They help each other. They uh, work together, good teamwork. um, They respect each other. So these are some of the cultural elements that come out of a family-run business, at least this one, that's important to maintain for the future.
0: And how do you do that? Like, what does it look like on a day-to-day basis?
1: Uh, Walking around. Okay. uh, Talking about what I'm up to, like what I did last week. Yeah. Talking about the next opportunity we're going after, asking them how their um, job or project is going lately. It's a lot of walking around. So a higher touch, being involved a little bit more personally. Yeah, high yeah. touch. Yeah, and uh, in, and in also in the field, that's why I travel with the uh, with the salespeople is to understand their situation sure. because they're kind of out there on their own. So it's important yeah. for them to have feel a strong connection back with the uh, headquarters. Absolutely, especially when a company goes through
0: change. I think people often don't realize how much a change affects employees and affects vendors, customers. So when you have a management ownership change, it's. I think that high touch can only provide reward because you're letting people know who you are and they're saying, okay, good. I I feel more confident. This is a good guy. He knows what he's doing. He's got my best interests at heart. So that's important. I well, think it's, so.
1: a, it's a balance, right? Because, um, now, being owned by private equity, there's expectations in terms of growth and performance. Yep. Yeah, there's pressure on and the business, isn't there? Right. Yeah. So uh, balancing that, those goals and objectives for the business versus what people have been used to, it's a, it's a balancing act, right? I would agree, yeah. And uh, a lot of communication. Yeah. There's a monthly lunch. There's talking in the hallway. There's... Um, emails I send out. There's one-on-ones I do. So just continually maintaining communication. Well, you know, earlier we were talking, I was saying, hey, um, there are misconceptions. You
0: were talking about wood as, a, as, a, as an agricultural product, renewable, it stores carbon. Like there's just, It's just net good all the way around. If you do it right, obviously a clear cut of forest, not so good. But as you're talking about this uh, misconception, I'm thinking even in the business world, there's misconception that you either have to have a really good family culture or you're profitable, but you can't be both. And I think maybe the opportunity the challenge for someone in your position is, how do I help people understand that it can be both, that we can actually have a really good human uh, kind environment with values, and at the same time, we can create wealth together. And those are good things that could be in the same room at the same time. Because I think some people feel like, oh, well, now the, P- the private equity guys are in here. All they care about is money. And oh, this new boss, he's going to be really whipping us to, to get his numbers. And yeah, we have to make numbers, but we can do it in a way that's good for everybody and
1: positive all the way around. So is, is, that, is that a challenge? It is a challenge. I think one thing is to uh, educate the people on what the whole business looks like. So I'll give you an example. Um, I have a monthly employee lunch, as I mentioned, the next one's next Tuesday. Um, And next Tuesday, I'll go over the growth strategy for the company, but not over, not with slides or anything like that, just kind of product line by product line, what our plan is and and the vision. Um, Another example is um, I took pictures when I was visiting customers with our salespeople, Ah, pictures and videos at customer sites, and then made a slideshow for everybody to say, hey, here's how our product is being used. You know, here we are in whatever lumber mill, and uh, they're putting the paint on. They're putting the sealer on. They're dipping the, uh, awesome. the boards, and that was really great for everybody to see how the product is being used. Yeah, if I'm on the um,
0: shipping dock and I never get to talk to these people on the phone because the sales reps and inside, it, you're helping me connect to. Hey, my work affects these guys over here, and. In- in another state, another city. That's really smart. And you can see it directly in a small company. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Eric, what has been uh, the, I'm going to ask you two things. The first question is, what has been the biggest challenge since taking the helm of the business? And the follow-up is going to be, what are you most proud of? But what's been the biggest challenge so far?
1: The biggest challenge has been um, actually our market situation and financials. Because of that uh, China tariff situation Mm -hmm. I was talking about Mm -hmm. before, the uh, hardwood production in the U.S. has dropped by about 20 or 25 percent. Because of the
0: export.
1: This year. Yes. And so that means our base business... Has dropped pretty much by the same percentage. Mm-hmm. So, what's been most challenging is to diversify to counteract that um, significant downturn. Okay. So, that's why we're adding new product lines. That's why we're getting into different market segments uh, to. Um, not be just totally dependent on the hardwood industry itself, which we love mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and is fantastic, and but is, is to, hurting yeah, right now. Yeah. So that my plan was always to diversify that way. But the challenge is to accelerate that given the significant downturn sure. in the base market. Sure.
0: Well, we could probably spend two hours talking about how you do that. We won't go there, but that—that's—it's—it's uh, it's interesting. I, I'm guessing having some private equity backing helps you maybe be a little bit more aggressive potentially in, in getting into those new markets. I'm just assuming versus a company that says, "Hey, we've got to fund this out of our own um, P and L and cash flow and." Right. Well,
1: this acquisition we just made in uh, September uh, brings us into some new market segments and strengthens our presence in the West, which is important as well. It's kind of a territory we can tap into some more. So it's still got to do with wood, still in the wood industry, but... because that's really our core strength, mm-hmm. but it brings us into those new growth opportunities. Smart. Yeah, that's great. And, and then I guess my other follow-up question is, what are you most proud
0: of so far? I mean, obviously the company has a history. It's been around since the 70s, but what are you most proud of in, in the short time that you've been at the helm?
1: Uh, I'm about eight months in, but I'd say the thing I'm most proud of is... Um, actually having a real growth strategy that we're executing. So we're seeing the results happen now in these different growth areas. Some are still kind of new, but... the, the fact that we've been been able to counteract that um, core business downturn, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that will then lead to much greater success as these new initiatives continue to grow.
0: Sure, I love what you're doing. You know, I always talk about the virtue of private business, small business. I mean, you're creating jobs, you're feeding families, and I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the, the you know you're in your industry, your company's a bit in a corner. With a political and economic environment environmental environment, uh, there are misconceptions about wood and all the stuff that and um, what you 're doing by trying to react quickly, coming up with uh, you know alternative plans looking for new markets you know, ultimately that leads to people being able to continue to care for their kids to 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 have hope for tomorrow you're, you know ideally if what you 're doing works you 're going to be hiring people this isn 't just a defensive move it 's you know, it's an opportunity to grow.
1: And uh, so I think I just want to draw out that piece of the story because I think sometimes that gets overlooked. Well, and I'll relate some of that to you. Um, At one point for a 50-person company, I had... Eight roles I was looking to fill, and I've <laughs> filled a couple of those with some great people, sure, um, with great experience. And I'll be filling the rest of them. For example, I just got an acceptance um, last night of another person. Okay, congratulations! So we are we are adding more resources to mm-hmm. the company mm-hmm. to help drive the growth, and um, that's good for them, and it's good for the rest of the team as well. Um, so. One question I ask, like I said, remember, working in a small company is not like a big company. You know, it's sometimes it's not 100 percent organized. So they need to have that uh, sort of uh, flexibility and sometimes resilience. And that's what everybody here has. You know, it's interesting to bring that up. When I I used to
0: run an agency uh, a few years back, I ran it for 15 years in Rochester. And so, in Rochester, one of our big employers was Kodak. You know, Xerox was another one, um, and they're still important companies. But uh, I would get these codec folks that, you know, maybe they're my age now, early 50s. They kind of rolled out a little early and they're looking, they need work. So they come to me. I knew them. It's a small enough town. You kind of get to know people. And, hey, Mike, I'd love to be on your team. Oh, great. Let's talk about that. Well, so they're a marketing executive. And I'm thinking this could be really good for me uh, as an owner to pull in somebody with this kind of depth. So tell me about, you know, what it was what did your role look like? And the more we would talk, you know, you were earlier mentioned specialization, it would occur to me that this person was so specialized that their whole career was a very small part of marketing. They, they didn't have the breadth that I was just presuming they would have. And so I was never able to make those offers because it you know, occurred to me, I need people that are more entrepreneurial. So I'd say, well, you know, what kind of research? Oh, no, no, no. Somebody else would take care of the market yeah, research. Right. What about the, you know, oh, no, no, I didn't do that. Like My thing was really this. And I thought, I can't pay... The other thing is their expectations for income. You know, I might pay seventy five thousand right. for that role, and they needed one hundred and fifty because they've been at Kodak with right. benefits. And right, um, so it's like yeah, it was just it just was a, there was an incongruency. You, you, I would find people that were in a larger corporation like yourself, but are still entrepreneurial. But a lot of folks, they needed that specialization. They wanted to go a mile deep and an inch wide, and and that's good, I guess. But it doesn't work always in small business. So I just appreciate when you're interviewing people saying, "Hey, just so you know." Yeah. Yeah, you got to be flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone I was I was interviewing
1: I was interviewing somebody just before we met today. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was making that crystal clear with him because he's been working for some larger companies. Sure. sure. And he seemed to be the kind of guy that would be ready to take yeah. this on. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Eric, as we're kind of drawing to a close, what's your vision for the company? You've talked a lot about challenges and your history and and, uh, some of the things you're proud of, which are really amazing. And I wish you all the best with with the initiatives you've got on the table right now. What's your vision for UC Coatings?
1: Our um, owners, High Road Capital, have certain goals in terms of growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for me, it's not just the number part of it. It's the... um, excitement part of it so um just continuing to expand and add i mean just keep moving Mm. keep moving outward and you know we'll kill some things but we're going to grow a lot of things and uh what will keep me motivated is if we keep making progress with our customers um I want us to be a recognized partner across the wood industry that has a great reputation that our customers can count on, uh, that people like working for. I think if all that happens, then the financial results will come. And, you know, that might sound like the kind of overused term, but visiting customers and see how they talk about us, uh, traveling a lot with people on an individual basis, I see that happening. So, um, I have a lot of uh, interest and confidence in supporting the wood industry as well for the reasons we talked about before. Sure, Um, There's kind of a... um, Uh, A personal attraction of our people to the industry, a lot of which are small business owners actually. Mm. You mentioned family-run businesses, well that's a lot of our customers and so being able to have that strong relationship with all those customers is uh, is exciting today and in the future for keeping that going. My guest today
0: has been Eric Degenfelder, he is the CEO of UC Coatings. Eric thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, folks, if you haven't done so already, please do me a favor. Take a moment and uh, check out UC Coatings website. You can learn more about them, their products. If you if you do any type of carpentry or you do anything with wood, you can even buy products directly from them. That is UC Coatings. That's UC Uncle Charlie uh, C O A T I N G S dot com. If you also are interested in private industry and content like this, guests like Eric, do me a favor and. And subscribe to this podcast. You can find the currency on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Hit that subscribe button and you'll get great content once a week. Guys, I love you all and I'll see you in the next episode.